الجزيرة بودكاست As wealthy nations consider how to cut their carbon emissions, there's one solution that's been getting quite a bit of attention. It's out with the old gas guzzlers and in with the new electric vehicles. From incentives for electric cars in the U.S. They're a vision of the future that is now beginning to happen. A future of the automobile industry that is electric. To all-out bans on gas and petrol cars in the U.K. and E.U. The United Kingdom is all set to put a ban on the sales of new petrol and diesel cars from the year 2030. But electric cars aren't exactly an environmental silver bullet. In the words of U.S. President Joe Biden... And a key part of the electric vehicle, to state the obvious, is the battery. In order to make batteries, you need specific types of metals, like cobalt and nickel. And one potential and controversial source for those metals is the deep sea. I'm Hala Mahiuddin, and this is The Take. Today, we're talking to a couple of people who've been following the debate over mining the deep sea. Daniel Ackerman is one of them. He's an independent climate journalist, and he recently reported on deep sea mining for the podcast How to Save a Planet. I've been covering deep sea mining for, I guess, three years now. And really just in the last year, the action has really been heating up. So I've kind of been almost full time on the deep sea mining beat in recent months. And that's because companies interested in deep sea mining are going from a phase of exploration to commercial exploitation. There are a number of different geologic formations that we could extract metals from. But really, the prize, so to speak, are polymetallic nodules. So depending on who you ask, these nodules are either like treasure waiting to be plucked from the bottom of the ocean, or they are the building blocks of a thriving ecosystem that should be left untouched. But less philosophically, they are rocks. Very valuable rocks, as Daniel hinted. In fact, some companies hoping to profit off them say these nodules are like a battery in a rock. By the end of this decade, there are predicted to be tens of millions of electric cars on the road. All of those are going to require batteries full of metal. And today, with the battery technology that we have, the best batteries, the ones that give you the longest range to drive on a single charge, those include decent amounts of cobalt and nickel. And those two metals are mined on land today, but they're often associated with really problematic social practices. Under each of these shelters are deep tunnels dug by hand. They often collapse. At the end of them are deposits of cobalt, which Congo exported nearly $2 billion worth in 2019. A lot of companies and countries and people who are also environmentalists say we should be considering this potential source of metal from the deep ocean. Right now, most of the exploration is focused on those polymetallic nodules. There are billions of them dotting the ocean floor. The word mining often evokes blasting a huge hole in the ground, digging a big open pit deep into the earth. The interesting thing about these polymetallic nodules is that they form right on the surface of the ocean floor. So you wouldn't be digging deep into the ocean floor. But most of the proposals for actually extracting these polymetallic nodules involve some form of a giant vacuum cleaner. 
That giant vacuum cleaner would crawl along the seabed, sucking up the first few centimetres off the ocean floor. Those are the centimetres that include the nodules, and it would send it all up a pipe. And we're talking this pipe would be like three miles long because the water is really deep. It would send this mixture up a huge pipe to a ship waiting at the surface. That's where the nodules are separated from the rest of the sediment. And whatever's left over gets sent back down into the ocean. Not only is that mining activity going to cause this huge plume that's kind of akin to a dust storm in the deep sea, there's also going to be the secondary plume from the pumping of water back into the ocean. That's Diva Amen. She's a Caribbean marine biologist focused on the animals and habitats of the deep ocean and the impact our actions have on them. So naturally, she spent quite some time studying the potential effects of deep-sea mining. There's going to be changes to water properties. There's going to be a really huge increase in light pollution. We have to remember the deep sea is a place where there is no sunlight. And so this is going to be a very big change for many of the animals who live there. And there's also going to be a big increase in noise pollution. All of this really is going to result in biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradation. And that could potentially damage many of the ecosystem services that the deep sea provides and that we rely on for a habitable planet. Just talk us through that, because this is one of the most remote areas of the planet. But I get the sense that we don't really know an awful lot about what's happening in the deep sea. So what are the ecosystems there like and how do they affect the ecosystems that are closer to to us on dry land? The deep sea is not a place that you and I are going to interact with, we think, on a daily basis. But in fact, we kind of do. It provides about 96% of all the habitable space on Earth, so it is enormous. And while it might not be habitable for humans, the deep sea does a lot for us. It helps regulate fisheries, which provide people with food and jobs. It plays its own crucial role in combating climate change. The oceans are a huge carbon sink. The deep sea is also a source of practical inspiration. We've found glass sponges in the deep sea. It's a very common type of sponge in the deep sea. Absolutely stunningly beautiful. They're made of silica, just the most intricate structures. And those structures have actually been used to inspire more efficient fibre optic cables. Some scientists are excited about the deep sea's medical potential. One of the most successful treatments for breast cancer currently comes from a shallow water marine sponge. And there are numerous examples like that. And the deep sea hasn't even really been tapped for that. And so imagine what is down there waiting for us to discover. And we just need to look and have the opportunity to explore and understand and value it before it's lost to potentially these quite damaging activities. And there's loads of biodiversity to explore. That includes some animals we could never imagine living on land. Everything from, you know, Dumbo octopus to blind white yeti crabs to glowing sharks to corals that are thousands of years old, bone-eating zombie worms. I mean, really, the deep sea is just full of life that is weird and wonderful, and there's a huge amount of it. I heard you mention the Dumbo octopus. I saw a tweet, uh, one of those videos that was going round, and it was scientists who were in a, an ROV that had gone down. Oh, 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 and it was 
this weird, it's almost like a pink octopus with like the big ears. Is that's the Dumbo octopus? Mm-hmm. I have watched that video so, so many times. <laughs> exactly. The most incredible exactly. thing that it looks like a cartoon. <laughs> and that's an actual animal living in the deep ocean. Absolutely. Like it's like Dr. Seuss on steroids in the deep sea, but that's why it's so wonderful and potentially can hold many of the solutions to some of the greatest challenges that humankind will face in the future. But yes, the Dumbo octopus is this octopus that has two sort of flaps on the size of its head, just like Dumbo, that it uses to swim. And it's ridiculously adorable. So he's my favourite. <laughs> What's your favourite deep sea animal? Oh, I mean, that's a really hard question. Oh, gosh. I absolutely love the blind white yeti crabs. And they live at hydrothermal vents, which are one of the habitats that could be mined in the future. And they have very hairy chests and arms. And they use this hairiness to basically use the fluid coming out of the hydrothermal vents, these sort of underwater hot springs. And they use those hairs to grow bacteria on them. And then when it gets hungry, it just eats the bacteria off of its hairy chest and arms. So it basically has like arm farms, which who doesn't want that? These animals might sound pretty new and different to the average person, but they're also pretty new to scientists as well. The vents where these crabs live, for example. That was only discovered in 2010. And much of these deep sea habitats, they're being discovered now or, you know, in in very, very, very recent times, just the last few decades. And yet so little of it has still been explored. And so it really does make you wonder, you know, what else is waiting out there to be discovered? You're describing these communities of animals down there. It's pretty incredible. But I imagine if you send a combine harvester down there or something similar, which is going to rip up the nodules, rip up the sediment, it will rip up these animals as well, won't it? Absolutely. There's going to be, of course, direct removal and destruction of the seafloor habitats, along with all of the unique fauna that lives there. Ultimately, much of it is going to be killed because many of them actually can't move right? Like corals and sponges. And those that can move may not be able to do so quickly. And again, we're still struggling to understand these places from just, you know, answering that basic question of what lives there. So it is still really hard to say what potentially we stand to lose and whether it is worth what we stand to gain from deep seabed mining. And what could be lost might extend further than the ocean floor. There was a recent study that came out by colleagues that showed that in the Clarion-Clipton zone, this area where there is the most mining exploration activity currently, there is no area that would not be subject to noise pollution on a scale never seen before. This study found that noise from one of those mines could travel around 500 kilometres underwater. That could affect not just the animals in the deep sea, but others higher up in this Clarion-Clipperton zone. For those animals, like whales, that use sounds like this to communicate, that kind of noise pollution could be very disruptive. So this is not one mine. This is not a small potential extractive activity. This could potentially change the the future of the ocean. You're one of the authors of a study that looked at what we do and what we don't know about the deep sea. And it turns out that we know very little. Can you just tell us a little bit about that study? So 
In early 2022, myself and a group of 30 co-authors who are either science and policy experts who work on deep seabed mining, we assessed all of the science that exists in regions with these exploration licenses. They wanted to see what we know about these regions, how well the seafloor is mapped, how much we know about the animals that live there, that kind of thing. And what we found was that across all of these areas where mining licenses have been granted, just 1.1% of scientific categories had enough knowledge to enable evidence-based decision-making. So if we were to flip that, nearly 99% of science is lacking to guide decision-making and management of this emerging industry. But an upcoming deadline means authorities may have to make some decisions very soon. More on that after the break. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on the Essential Middle East podcast. Right now, 31 contracts have been issued for companies to explore deep-sea mining. Those contracts are issued by something called the International Seabed Authority, also known as the ISA. It's an agency associated with the UN. Here's environmental journalist Daniel again to explain how it works. The International Seabed Authority has kind of a dual mandate. So first, they have to conserve the marine environment. And second, they're charged with developing and fostering this new industry of deep sea mining. Right now, that means creating a set of rules that will govern the whole industry. And now they have a deadline to make those rules. Depending on who you ask, it is either a a hard deadline or just total fiction. But there's this thing called the two-year rule. It's a clause in the UN's Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it basically says, If a country or a company want to go out and start mining in international waters, but the ISA has not finalized this rule book, then the contractor would have to give basically two years notice saying, hello, ISA, we would like to start mining in two years. Hurry up and finish the rule book so that we can have something to follow when we do our mining. In 2021, the Pacific Islands nation of Nauru and its corporate partner, a subsidiary of a Canadian firm called The Metals Company, did just that. The president of Nauru submitted a letter to the ISA saying, we would like to start mining in two years. And so please hurry up and finish this rule book that you, the ISA, have been working on. And that's moved the debate around deep sea mining into a whole new gear. Daniel went to Jamaica to cover those International Seabed Authority meetings in July and August of 2022. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but my sense of things is that there just isn't enough time to finalize this rulebook. You know, like the countries are are debating really down at the word level every single word of this mining code, which ultimately is going to be hundreds and hundreds of pages long. And it appears like we could hit the end of this two-year deadline next summer where Nauru and the metals company want to start mining, but there's no rulebook in place. That doesn't necessarily mean that come June of 2023, if there's no rulebook, it'll be a free-for-all on the ocean floor. 
There's a lot of legal wrangling over all of this, but a number of international lawyers and environmentalists basically hold the opinion that the ISA does not have to grant this license, even if there's no rule book. They could basically say, we're going to hold off. We're not going to allow the metals company in Nauru to start mining. But that means a relatively small group of people, just one part of the International Seabed Authority, would be making a decision about something that could forever change Earth's oceans. The process for creating this rulebook, though, has a lot more democratic say. This mining code is being slowly drafted by consensus of all of the member states of the ISA. So that's more than 150 countries are basically going to all agree on the rules for deep sea mining. So this will eventually be a document that has wide agreement across all of these varied member states. And there's quite a bit that needs agreement. There's a huge amount of debate on environmental regulations, and there's also a pretty significant financial aspect that also needs to be worked out, the so-called financial mechanism. And I think this is kind of a point that often gets lost here is that, yes, this will be impacting the marine environment. It's also going to be impacting the global economy. Part of the reason for that comes down to ownership. Who owns those nodules located in international waters? Well, you and I both own uh, (laughs) these polymetallic nodules. And in fact, they're defined under the United Nations Treaty as the common heritage of humankind. So if a single company wants to go out and mine these in international waters, they are responsible for making royalty payments to the ISA, and then the ISA will distribute those royalty payments among all of the member states. And so this is another huge sticking point in the negotiations. As you might guess, different countries have different ideas about who should get how much. At a very simple level, they could distribute funding to all of the member countries just purely based on the population of each country. There's this question of whether equity should be more of a factor in this. Should poorer countries receive a larger share than wealthier countries? And then there's also this fascinating issue of the fact that countries right now that rely on terrestrial mining as a big part of their economy, they could be harmed by deep sea mining, right? So at these ISA negotiations, We hear countries like South Africa basically advocating that countries that rely heavily on terrestrial mining, they should receive a larger share of royalties because their economy is going to take a hit if deep sea metals come on the market and and lower metals prices coming out of South Africa. So it is a complicated web to, to negotiate here, and it involves not just the environment, but also the distribution of funds to 150 plus countries. With that kind of money on the line, deep sea mining could feel inevitable. We asked Daniel if he feels that way. If you asked me this question a couple years ago, I would have said yes. But one of the big things that was new at the ISA negotiations this past summer is that suddenly these calls for a moratorium, basically a a pause or a delay on commercial-scale deep-sea mining, those calls are growing much louder. Several countries have said they're not ready to give the green light. And Fiji, Palau, Samoa and Chile have all called for moratoriums. Scientists like Diva are speaking out too. As of now, over 650 scientists from over 40 countries have signed this statement calling for a pause 
to the transition from exploration to exploitation until we know more about the deep sea and how it will be impacted. And are other civil society groups joining you in your call? Absolutely. You know, it does feel like there's this real sort of call for a pause or a moratorium or a recess, whatever we'd like to call it, um, before mining exploitation begins. It feels like that is sort of gathering momentum. That includes plenty of the usual groups you might expect, like environmental and human rights organisations. It also includes some of the companies that could stand to use those minerals in the first place. So we've seen BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, Google, Samsung, Philips and a number of other companies saying that they will not use deep sea minerals. We've also seen a number of banks come out and say they'll be excluding customers who undertake deep sea bed mining. You know, NatWest, Credit Suisse, Lloyds, Royal Bank of Scotland, a number of investment firms. So it really does seem that there is this gathering momentum saying, you know, to move forward with this rapid, unrestrained expansion of mining into the deep ocean currently would be deemed to be irresponsible and not in line with sustainable development. Deep sea science is a pretty expensive field. And Eva told me that the fact not many people have had an opportunity to engage with it is one reason the idea of mining the deep sea has gotten as far as it has. Growing up, I didn't really interact with the deep sea, didn't know much about it beyond like occasionally being out on a boat and staring down into the ocean and wishing I knew what lived down there. The thought that much of the deep ocean could be lost before people have the opportunity to bask in its wonder and majesty, I find that deeply upsetting and is something that, you know, I'd prefer really didn't happen. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Ruby Zaman, Chloe K. Lee, Alexandra Locke, Ashish Mahotra, Amy Walters and me, Hala Mahiadeen. Alex Roldan is The Take's sound designer. Tim St. Clair makes this episode. Aya Elmalek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back 